production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Tara Bruck's teachings blend Western psychology and Eastern spiritual practices, mindful attention to our inner life and a full compassionate engagement with our world. The result is a distinctive voice in Western Buddhism, one that offers a wise and caring approach to freeing ourselves and society from suffering. Tara defines quiet as presence, not an absence of sound, but an absence of noise. In this heartfelt conversation, Tara and I reflect on the moral and spiritual convictions that have driven her and what she is teaching and still learning about what it means to be human. We're all living in this incredibly uncertain world and we know it. And what if we could, instead of acting out, instead of nourishing our stories, what if we could pause and have the courage to go in our own bodies and hearts and feel what's going on and bring some kindness there. And then look at our world and see what's around us. The way we would treat each other would be far more humane, far more sensitive. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Tara Bruck is the author of many books, including Radical Compassion, True Refuge and her newest book, Trusting the Gold. Ultimately, this is a conversation about how to build a life of greater joy and strengthen personal fulfilment to better develop and add to the greater well-being of all. Tara is a deeply beautiful person. She embodies all that she teaches, dignity, humility, and a true reverence for life. It is an absolute honour to bring you her story. Tara Brach, you say... My earliest memories of being happy are playing in the ocean. Can you tell us a bit about your childhood? Yeah, I was a nature babe. You know, I loved um, the times I felt any sense of what we'll I'll call as an adult spirituality where we're being outside or playing in the ocean. They couldn't get me out of the ocean. Um, I just loved it. My other facets of my childhood, you know, I had a... Um, I had loving parents and, you know, a healthy kind of upbringing and it was totally neurotic, you know, (laughs) it's like when my father was very driven. And so I had that sense of, you know, never enough, need to do more, need to work harder. My mother was a active alcoholic while I was growing up. And so I had a sense of like, in some way I should be fixing her or making her happy and I couldn't, she ended up going into recovery and becoming, you know, really active in the field, but not while I was young. So 
I both got the gifts of a lot of loving and attention and also all the neurosis in the world with, you know, what I now call the trance of unworthiness, having to try to always be a better person than I was. How do you think having a father that was so driven affected you to how you are today? And then in the same sense, having a mother who was an alcoholic, how did both those things affect you? It's a really, really good question, Sarah, because I didn't want to be like my mother. My mother was looked weak and was anxious and depressed. And I modeled after my father. And so my idea of being lovable and worthwhile was to be productive and achieve and work hard. And that became a real motif. You know, for many, many years, it was, it was to try to do that. And the challenge was, it was never enough. Yes. It didn't matter what I achieved. It didn't matter if I got the book done or if I was te- I taught a workshop and people came away feeling all bright and light. You know, I'd be kind of glowing from it for about two minutes and then I'd be on to my to-do list. What next do I have to do and not fail at? <laughs> you know? So it it put me into, as I mentioned, what I call the trance of unworthiness. And it really wasn't until I at one point just caught it and said, I asked myself a question. I said, what would be enough? And it was a really powerful question because I started thinking, well, if I did this and did that, and I realized nothing to do with doing, nothing to do with achieving. Um, Even if I was a very nice, good person, the only times I feel a sense of enough are when there's a lot of presence when my it's just open-hearted presence and it doesn't have anything to do with doing or achieving so that was really revelatory of course it's taken a lot of years to unhook myself from the idea that I should always be doing more I feel like you're speaking about my life in the sense of not feeling like you're enough unless you're doing something because I constantly feel that and even I see it with a lot of people who are successful in their roles Something great can happen, but you don't sit back and enjoy it. You may for a couple of seconds, and then it's about moving forward, moving forward. And it's that saying about you need to enjoy the journey rather than just it be the destination. And I always think about that because I think you're enjoying the journey, but you always have to, you're always striving, which it's it's that funny push and pull because obviously when you're ambitious, you want to move further in your career. So that isn't a bad thing. But at the same time, what you bring up rings so true to me about when I feel most fulfilled in my life is that sense of just stillness and connection. I mean, to me, that is the most beautiful thing you can have. And that can be in a meditation. It doesn't even need to be with another person. It can just be in meditation. You know, the whole idea of the space of of euphoria is between thoughts. I always think about that because when I will sit in my meditation, if I'm doing Vedic meditation, I try and move myself into that space. And even if it's just for a second, I feel that sense of calm. I would like to know from your perspective, do you remember that first sense of that moment where you felt like you're enough? You know, I have different times that it's become really clear that enoughness. And now it's not so much of an issue um, Mm. because even when there's a kind of 
intensity and going for something, I'm not so hooked. Yes. In other words, I'm still, um, there's still a sense of presence with that. But early on, I'll share a story with you. I was, um, I was very, um, active in terms of uh, social change and a real activist in college. And I was going to go to law school and I shifted. And instead of law school, I went and joined a spiritual community, an ashram. And what happened was this. <laughs> I was going to meetings, you know, the rallies and we would, you know, pump our fists and we, <laughs> there was a lot of angry othering and, you know, like wanting the revolution. And then I would go on Tuesday night to yoga class and there would be this quietness and this, you know, peacefulness. And then we'd meditate and I'd get very still. And I remember one spring night I was walking back to my home and the fruit trees and the fragrance. And I stopped and stood still. And I realized that my mind and my body were in the same place at the same time. Mm. There's this collectedness and there was such a sense of belonging, like belonging in the moment and belonging to this heart and body and to the world. And I realized that I really want to see our world change and evolve and so on. And it wasn't going to come from a kind of um, mentality that was militant and that was making others the bad guy. It was going to come from a quality of caring and love. And so I actually moved into an ashram and really dedicated myself for the next 10 years to practices, just as you described, that could get me very familiar with what it's like to not be on my way somewhere else, mm -hmm. but really to be right here and really intimate with whoever I'm speaking with or if I'm not speaking, intimate with my inner life. And so that was a pivotal one of a moment of enough and realizing it was precious. Can you tell us about your time in the ashram? Because that was quite a journey for you. Yeah, the ashram was very disciplined. We'd get, we'd get up at, um, you know, 3.30 in the morning and meditate and do yoga and chant and pray and for a number of hours and work in community businesses and come back home and meditate some more and go to bed. And um, so it was, it was very disciplined and there were many moments of really learning how to collect my attention, how to get really quiet, how to really touch into peace. And... There was also a message that we were trying to become more perfect. <laughs> so it played in a little bit, to, you know, it's what I have found is that we bring our neurosis into spiritual life. Mm -hmm. So just the same way I was kind of type A-ish before I joined an ashram, it just transferred. <laughs> and so I was really trying to be the best yogi and the best meditator. And I finally caught wind of that. And, and you know, I left after about 10 years and, uh, got involved with Buddhist practice, which is really much not about trying to get somewhere else and perfect concentration or perfect what they call the jhanas, the real collectedness, but it's really about making friends with the moment, being present, seeing what's happening in the present moment and opening our hearts to that. Yes. Um, it's kind of the difference between climbing a mountain to perfection and turning around and just embracing this whole world and all its messiness and beauty. So that was, a, that was a shift for me in terms of spiritual practice. There was a time when you were in the ashram where you fell pregnant and then had a miscarriage. And one of the teachers there said something to you. I'll let you tell the story, but it kind of shifted your way of, 
of thinking about how everything was at the time in the ashram. Yeah, I had a very disillusioning uh, experience right towards the end where the international leader of the group um, stood me up right after I'd had a miscarriage and basically shamed me. He said, you didn't want the baby anyway, and your amb- all you cared about was your work and your ambition. And, you know, he really... Um, he really de- demeaned me in front of a lot of people two days after I had had a miscarriage. And it was traumatizing in the sense that I had never had anybody treat me like that. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of went into the spin that either he was right and something was horribly wrong with me, or I needed to deepen my sense of trust in my own goodness. Mm. And so, Sarah, it was like a very pivotal experience because of that, because it forced me to, in some way, say, you know, I am going to commit to loving myself just as I am. You know, and of course I'm imperfect, but I'm going to embrace that. I, I don't have to buy into this message that he's telling me that in some way I'm this really flawed being. And that was really the beginning of a, a deepening path in what I call, you know, radical self-acceptance, radical compassion, where, and it took me seeing the pain of feeling that I was bad, the pain of feeling that something is wrong with me, to realize I actually had to make that right the center of my path to not believe that mm-hmm. and to embrace myself. And then it took a number of years of the practices that I teach now and the, the books I've written about are all about how to wake up out of that um, conviction that we're flawed. And it's it's really deep. One woman, one woman was telling me about being with her mother when her mother was dying and her mother came out of a coma and looked at her and said, you know, all my life, I thought something was wrong with me. And then she closed her eyes and she died. That was the oh. last thing she said. And for this woman, it was a real wake-up. It was like saying, it's tragic that we would spend days and decades judging ourselves and hating ourselves. And it doesn't have to be that way. But first, we have to see that it's happening. And then we have to start learning practices that help us to not believe the thoughts, because that's a really critical part of becoming more free, not to believe our thoughts. And to really bring care and tenderness towards ourselves. So those, a lot of the meditations I teach are really how to do that. It's an interesting point that you raise because sometimes people do say stuff to us that does hurt us. And it might be about the way that we're acting or you might be in a job and someone's commenting, commenting on your work or they put you into a box of being a certain type of person how if that person, especially is like an authority figure or someone that you care about, how do you remove yourself to know that it might just be their opinion and somehow not allow yourself to take it on? What you're asking is the hub of the challenge and it actually takes a daily practice and, and even, so that even when that's not happening, it takes a daily practice to get intimate with our inner experience, to put aside a few minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, because meditation is a practice of getting intimate with our experience, of quieting the mind a bit, 
and feeling what's here and accepting what comes up. And if we know how to do that, if we know how to come in and inhabit ourselves, embody, be with what's here, then when somebody says something, we have a little more groundedness and perspective and wisdom, really, in being able to say, well, that's their opinion, and they can have that opinion. And we're open-hearted enough and actually wise enough to say, whatever is true that I can learn from, great. But not to take it as a reflection of our core being. Um, the deep, deep intention here is to trust our basic goodness, that mm-hmm. there's a basic intelligence and love and creativity and value in each of us. And the more we trust that in ourselves, I call it trusting the gold, the more when we look at others, we can see their persona and we can see their personality and their defenses, but we can see that same spirit and goodness in them too. Relationships is, some spiritual teachers will say, it's the 101 of being in this world. And it also can be one of the most beautiful things that we have. And as Ramda says, we're all walking each other home. So that is um, within itself such a beautiful thing, but it can also be one of the most challenging things that we have in our life. How do you deal with challenging relationships in your life? Well, I love the question because I feel like, um, you know, we're all wounded in relationship Mm. and we heal in relationship. And whenever there's difficulty in relationship, it's not so much about that relationship, but it's about unmet needs in that are kind of conflicting with another person, but that really go way, way back. And there's a story that really helps me that uh, if you imagine you're in the woods and you see a little dog by a tree and you go to pet it and it lurches at you with its fangs bared and, you know, fierce. And so you shift from being friendly to being really angry and, you know, push, you know, pulling back but then you see that the dog has a paw in a trap. Mm. And then you shift again and you realize, oh, that poor thing. You might not go real close because it's dangerous, but your heart cares. And, and so what I found when other people act in ways that I find harmful or make me feel aversive or angry is first I tend towards my own feelings because if you try to prematurely be compassionate, it's actually not real. It's it's called premature transcendence. It's, you don't really feel compassion. It's just an idea. So first I tend to my own feelings. Let's say somebody has said something that's injurious to me, that insulted me, that demeaned me. I'll first go ahead and feel the hurt. And I'm here with my hand on my heart because what I often do is breathe with it and let myself really be in touch with, oh, that hurts. You know, underneath the anger, there's hurt. Underneath the anger, there's pain. And then I'll, you know, offer myself some kindness until I feel a sense of being back at home with myself. And then I can look at the other person and start to see how they had a leg in a trap. Mm. I can start to see how they may have acted because they were feeling that I wasn't respecting them or attending to them or prioritizing them. But I can see what's behind the behavior. And that makes it possible to then communicate. If all we do is react out of our hurt, we just keep fueling the cycle of aggression. That wisdom is quite profound. How do we, in a situation like that, 
do what you said, but then stop ourselves from ruminating over it. Because I feel like it actually happened not long ago where someone, I actually don't know them well, and they got really upset with something and they kind of raised their voice to mean another person. And I could see how they were upset. There was a lot of miscommunication. But the fact that they were quite rude and said some hurtful things really upset me. And I obviously have the tools to be able to go, okay, I totally understand where they were coming from. But at the same time, their words wounded me. It it hurt. And I thought, okay, release, release, give love. But then I feel like a couple of a day later, it starts annoying me again. So my question is, how do we stop that rumination and kind of accept what is and move forward? I feel like the mind pulls you back a bit. So I would like to know how to move forward so the mind doesn't bring us back into that dark space. That's a great question. And here's what I found is that we can't stop the rumination until we pay attention to the roots that keep triggering the thoughts. Mm. We can't simply say, oh, come on, dear, this isn't such a big deal. Let's move on. Because there's something in our body and our heart that's upset. So we actually have to be able to bring our meditation to where we feel upset. And one of the meditations I teach that's really helpful for that, it's really helpful for any difficult emotion, is based on the acronym RAIN. And I know you're familiar with it, Sarah. Yes. So what I would do if you're ruminating is pause and step aside when you have a chance and let the rumination be kind of your entry to doing the RAIN practice. And for those listening, RAIN is an acronym for recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. And it's really bringing mindfulness and compassion to whatever's, whatever the roots are that are triggering the rumination. Tara, I wanted to ask you, in 2005, you found out that you had an incurable genetic disease that affects your connective tissue and all these wonderful things that you love doing, which was running, riding, swimming, walking on sand. How in your life have you dealt with that? And how are you now? Well, I'll start from how am I now. I'm actually much better. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I can do most of the things I love doing. I can swim and hike and play and all of that. I'm back in the ocean again. Um, and Sarah, for probably a good five, six years, I was spiraling down and I had no real reason to hope I could get better. So what it did was it forced I couldn't enjoy life the way I normally would enjoy life. And it felt like a death, you know, and I, a lot of people I've talked to when they get sick like that, it feels like a death of the life, you know, and I realized I needed to have a much more profound way of feeling um, love for life and at home in life. And that, that became my prayer, you know, may I love this life no matter what. And I started finding more and more in subtle ways I had never explored before that I could become very, very present and quiet and enjoy very, think I could just sit still and look at the fern in my bedroom and, and the lacy leaf and, and get a real joy from it or walk very slowly somewhere on a flat plane because I couldn't do hills and, 
and, and, and just really breathe with the movement and feel myself on this earth, belonging to the earth. So I learned a lot from being sick. And I learned it in a relational way, too. With I was newly married. And I had married my husband. And when we got together, you know, I was so athletic and we would just have a blast in all these different ways playing. My first gift to him was a wetsuit so we could go boogie boarding. You know? <laughs> and then within two years, I was like, I was a basket case. And it brought up this real fear and shame that, you know, I'm not the woman that he got together with. And is he going to want to even be with me? And I remember... Um, the pain of that and then bringing rain to that and recognizing that I was caught in this, this deep shame spiral and, you know, letting it be there, allowing it, investigating and feeling it in my body and feeling that old core feeling of, you know, am I lovable, that deep fear and, and then holding myself with compassion. And I did enough rounds of it that I began to, be in a much deeper, more tender relationship with myself. I felt much more spacious and open. And then I could talk to him and I could actually confess, you know, this is what I'm feeling. And he was able to confess how powerless he had been feeling and being able to show up for me. And we actually became more intimate than we ever had. That his love was not about whether I could go boogie boarding with him, you know, surprise, surprise. But in my in my mind, um, I, I was in question. So I share this with you because illness has a lot of different ways that it um, can bring us down. It can be the chronic pain can, can mm. just bring on depression. It can bring on a sense of grief of losing life. It can bring on shame that something's really wrong with us. And it requires what I call taking finding a very deep refuge of spirit and presence and love that is big enough to be able to hold the illness. And I, and I found that, and I'm much better now, and if I got sick again, I'd still struggle, but I know that there's um, a space that I am familiar with of loving presence that can hold it when it happens. How did you manage to get better? A mix. Um, It was a slow spiral back, but it was a mix of um, getting very good holistic treatments and prolotherapy. And, you know, I could just go on this long list. Mostly it was learning how to very gradually exercise to build back some strength and, and get a positive spiral going. For all those people that do, I mean, they might have illnesses or even if it is just that chronic pain, which is terrible, how do they find that space that you found? I think it takes um, a combination of being committed to doing an inner practice, mm. just as you do. Meditation actually helps us to become um, more at home in ourselves, no matter what's going on, whether we're, you know, dying or giving birth or celebrating our mourning, it, it just helps us be at home in the reality of the moment. And that's the gift of meditation. So I recommend practicing a short time minimally each day. I mean, nature loves rhythm. So if we're, if we just practice every day, it really is a gift to the soul. And um, there are many, many ways to practice. I have you know, thousands of free meditations on my website. And it's really, you just have to kind of find what what feels like a fit and customize it 
anyway, because everybody has to customize. So that's one piece. It's just a regular practice of homecoming, really, of, of just sitting still just for a bit and getting used to being with ourselves. Um, the poet Rumi says, do you make regular visits to yourself? Mm. So it's really getting intimate with our inner life. And the other is relationship, that we deepen our sense of connection with each other because really all suffering comes from forgetting our belonging to each other. And I know people that have been in horrific life situations and if they feel held in love with others, they can get through it. That whatever it is, if we feel that field of loving, we can get through it. So it's both. It's bringing a, a loving and present relationship to our inner life and bringing it alive with each other. What's your daily meditation practice? Well, I get up each morning uh, pretty early because I'm an early riser and I exercise first. It's the first thing I do. And then I physically, and then I sit still for about 45 minutes. And my, my practice is really um, quieting my mind, scanning through my body to let go of tension and so on, and then opening to whatever life is here unconditionally just open to the life that's here but I always end with a with a heart reflection which is I sense the day ahead and I sense what most matters which is in some way to have a loving connection in the world with whoever I'm connecting with whoever I'm with and that's my and I set my intention and then at the end of the day I sit much shorter because I'm wiped out and I just don't have the energy to sit but I, in some way, review the day and sense, you know, was it aligned with my heart? And if it was, great. And if it wasn't, it's not judgment. It's more, oh, okay, so that's where I forgot. Because I think of it all as kind of remembering and forgetting. And, and then I just resolve for the next day to be a little different. And, and part of the loving is what I think of as, as a mirror of goodness. It's just, mm. you know, to trust who we are, but also... To help others really trust their goodness. Um, there's one author, Rachel Remen, who writes about being a young girl and her grandfather would call her Nishimala, which is little beloved soul. And she felt like he was reflecting her goodness. And he died when she was young and she was afraid that God would forget her, that she'd forget her goodness. Um, but she found out that once somebody has done that mirroring, it just stays with you. But at the end of her, her mother's life, she told her mother about her grandfather's blessings. And her mother said, you know, Rachel, I have blessed you every day of my life, but I never had the wisdom to do it out loud. Aww. And that has stayed with me, Sarah, because we, you know, we all need to be reminded. And it's such a gift to just think of somebody in your life and just resolve, you know, when I'm with them next, I'm going to let them know what I love about yeah. them. And it helps people feel more at home in themselves. So if we could all be being mirrors of goodness, I think it would bring out our best. It's so true, Tara. Earlier on here uh, this year, we had a colleague at our workplace that committed suicide and a very good friend of ours. And it all, as most suicides are, was a big shock. And I loved him dearly, such a beautiful soul. 
And I thought, my God, I don't know if I told him I loved him. There's so much regret that goes around suicide. Mm. But at least it taught me to appreciate people and let them know how I feel. And to your point, I've I've really made a real effort in telling people who I care for that I do care for them and that I'm always here for them. And even if it sounds awkward or you feel awkward, I don't feel that when I've ever expressed myself to someone to let them know how much I care for them and I love them, the other person hasn't taken that and I've seen how fulfilled and how appreciative they are of that. It's such an important thing that we can all do. I love what you just said about it can feel awkward because that's what stops us. Yeah. We're afraid. It's such an intimate thing. And we're afraid in some way another person will be uncomfortable or maybe they'll push us away because they don't want to get that close. But just as you said, we it's it's our deepest longing. We want to feel close, you know. And even if it's awkward, so what? Yeah. You know, when yeah. dust is dust, you're going to be grateful for every time you looked at somebody in the eye and said, "You know, you you really matter to me, and I'm I'm here for you." You'll you'll be grateful for that. Absolutely. You touched on earlier about how you then went on to study a lot of the Buddhist teachings, and that's been a basis for a lot of what you do now. I mean, all the Buddhist teachings are so beautiful. Tell us what the the basis of what you learned from them. Yeah, maybe I can do it in the form of there's a, a true story about a giant statue of the Buddha that was not a beautiful statue. It was like plaster clay, but it survived hundreds of years. People just were, it was popular. But in the 1950s, cracks started appearing. And when one enterprising monk looked in a crack, what glowed back was the gleam of gold. And so they took off what turned out to be the plaster clay coverings. It turns out to be the largest solid gold statue of the Buddha in Southeast Asia. And the monks believe it was covered over because of invading armies so to protect it from desecration and being stolen, that kind of thing, much in the way that we cover over our innate purity to protect us through difficult times, to protect us in a difficult world. And we all do it. I mean, we all have coverings. We all have ego protection defenses and ways of being aggressive and judgmental and ways of trying to prove ourselves look, you know, looking good. And, and that's not who we are. Those are the coverings. And so the a deep message of Buddhism is to trust the goal, to trust the true nature of what we are, the, the inherent awareness and love that's here, that that's the most fundamental expression of our being. And then just bring a tremendous amount of compassion, humor, presence to the coverings, because the more we're present with the coverings, they get more transparent. So the ego parts that are useful, they're still there. And then we're not so identified with the defensiveness or the aggression. And so I love that metaphor for Buddhism, that we're really learning to bring presence to the coverings, what plays out in our daily life, and remember the awareness, the loving awareness, because the more we do it, as we move through life, then when we look at other people, that's what we see. Yeah. We see their goodness shining through, so and true. we can bring it out more. So that, that's kind of a basic Buddhist teaching to really trust in our true nature that I love. 
Tara, I was listening to this beautiful talk that you did and one part of it, you said something and it, it made me start to think. You said, imagine that today or the day that you just had was the last day of your life. And I thought, oh, and I, was, I started to think about it and I thought, God, like my day was fine. Nothing negative happened, but it wasn't glorious. I probably could have spent more time with my kids or maybe I looked at my phone too much or all these things. But it was such an interesting concept that you brought up. There was this line that you said that I thought was so profound. You said, noticing is the beginning of shifting. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, it's it's basically saying, um, if you imagine a big circle that's awareness and there's a line that goes through the middle and whatever's above the line's in awareness and whatever's below the line is outside of awareness. And what we're really, and we're, and we're prisoners of what's below the line. So if we don't notice what's going on inside us at the moment, if we don't notice that we're lonely or scared, or if we don't, if I don't notice for you that you're upset about something that's below the line, then I am a much more rigid, contracted being. I'm not able to respond creatively or flexibly. So in the moment that we start noticing what's going on, if I can notice my nervousness or notice my sadness, it comes above the line. It's the beginning of freedom. It gets included in awareness. I'm no longer controlled by it. It's, it's almost like if you think of it like we're an ocean with waves. When we become aware of the waves, we realize, oh, I'm the ocean. This is part of me, but it doesn't control me. Mm. So that's kind of the meaning of it, that we come back to more of a sense of our innate wholeness, our creativity, our aliveness. Why, Tara, are the stories we tell ourselves so important? Every time we're telling ourselves a story, it has an effect on our body. Mm. And a huge amount of our stories are fear-based. What's described as the negativity bias, we're we're mostly scanning for what's going to go wrong and our stories are about what's going to go wrong. So if I'm telling myself a story like, oh, I'm going to talk to Sarah and I'm not going to remember what's really important. When I tell myself that story, my body starts contracting. There's biochemistry of fear and that biochemistry of fear sets off more stories. And so there's a looping that Mm. goes on. And that looping keeps us a prisoner. We stay in this small world of a fearful self that's afraid of what bad thing's going to happen. We lose access, actually, we lose access to a most recently evolved part of our brain, to our prefrontal cortex, to our executive functioning, to our creativity, our mindfulness, our empathy. So the stories really do keep us prisoner. And that's why it's so important in, in mindfulness training and in meditation training to catch the fact that we're telling ourselves a story. Because if you see it, if you notice you're telling yourself a story, you're no longer inside the story. Yes. Tara, the Buddha talks a lot about life having suffering in it and no one goes through life without having some suffering. But how do we accept the suffering when it occurs? How do we move through that with grace? Well, a lot of people are afraid that if they accept 
suffering that they'll never get through it. Like if I accept that I'm, you know, this, that this, I have this addictive behavior, or if I accept that I get defensive all the time, or accept that I'm judgmental or angry, um, it'll never change. And actually the American psychologist, Carl Rogers said, it really wasn't until I accepted myself just as I was that I was free to change. So the intervention is this, that we learn to pause. And the pause, I call it the sacred art of pausing. That when we re-encounter a pattern that causes suffering, the first step is to pause and to recognize, oh, this is going on. And then we deepen our attention and really discover what's it like right now? What does this feel like? Can I hold this with care? And if we do that, then we re-enter the next moment and we're actually not as hooked by the pattern. And I'll share an example of this, Sarah, that has struck me for years. Uh, there was a lieutenant in the army who had to take a um, anger management program that had a lot of this, just what we're talking about, this mindfulness and pausing and compassion in it. And he was one night in a uh, in the supermarket uh, shopping and he piled his cart. He got into the line. He wasn't in the, you know, he was in the regular line, not the express line, but the woman in front of him only had one item and she was in his line. Plus she had a child. Plus she handed the child to the clerk and they were ooing and eyeing over the child and he got triggered and he, he really, this steaming anger, you know, I've got a lot to do. I'm an important person. Look what, what are they doing? They, she shouldn't be in this line. She, he was really steamed up. And so he, then he saw it. He saw the stories. He saw his pattern. He said, up oh, mindfulness. And he paused and he sensed what was going on. I'm angry, angry, angry. Noticed that he felt the anger. He could feel underneath the anger, that fear, like if I don't get everything done, my world will collapse, you know, that fear we have. And, and, and he could just name it. And then he just was kind towards it. Okay, it's okay. And when he kind of looked at, at the child, he realized the child was kind of cute. So <laughs> when it was his turn, they left. He said to the clerk, you know, that, that little girl was adorable. And she beamed. She said, oh, thank you. That's my daughter. Actually, my mother brings her over. My husband was killed last year in Afghanistan. So my mom brings her over twice a day. So we have a little time together. And, you know, I share that story. It's not like everyone we meet is just gone through that big a loss, but everyone we meet is struggling. You know, they say everyone you meet is struggling hard. Yes. Be kind. And we're all living in this incredibly uncertain world, and we know it. And what if we could, instead of acting out, instead of nourishing our stories, just like you want to like get out of that rumination, why, instead of spending our life in these stories, what if we could pause and actually have the courage to go in our own bodies and hearts and feel what's going on and bring some kindness there and then look at our world and see what's around us. The way we would treat each other would be far more humane, far more sensitive. You know, we'd have that lens of, well, what, what's it like being you that really brings up a, a, a true compassion? So it was a long response to your question, but we can break out of the patterns 
And it does begin by pausing and accepting what's going on and then deepening our attention. Because yes. I, I know that there was a point in your life where you say you were a single mum for 12 years and you're obviously very driven and have done so many amazing things. How did you move through that time? Well, some of the time that I was a single mom, there was a part of me thinking, you know, I'm missing out. I mean, I was in on and off in different relationships, but I, you know, I was missing out on having a partner, a real full-time partner. And, you know, I was raising my son, not all alone. My His, his dad was helpful. Um, and I was busy, but, you know, I didn't feel too sorry for myself because I have a very charmed life. I love what I do. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky. Teaching meditation is a, is a dream job, you know, and the books I write are about stuff I'm fascinated by. So I, I didn't feel sorry for myself. When I was stressed, I just used the meditation to help. But I also did not have a, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, if you're single, that means something's wrong with you or something's wrong with your life. And, and that conditioning could creep in, but I just didn't believe it because that part of my life was had a lot of juiciness and richness mm. and a lot of love with a lot of different people. And so I don't look at it like it was a um, horrifically challenging era. And when I did meet my partner, my, who's my current husband and partner, that was a delight and this is a new era. Yes, Absolutely. There's a beautiful line that you say, which is happiness lies not in finding what is missing, but in finding what is present. If we're in that lack mentality and we always are striving for more or we feel like maybe someone doesn't have a partner or they're craving something that they feel is missing in their life, how do we find peace with what is? Yeah, you're asking um, kind of the core question that the Buddha asked, which mm-hmm. is, you know, in our, our habit is to think something's wrong or something's missing. Yeah. Those are our two habits. And if we keep on practicing presence, what we find is that in moments of full presence, nothing is wrong and nothing's missing. You know, if we're out in the woods and we get quiet and we just feel that sense of belonging to all the elements, that the trees are our friends, we're part of it all, there's nothing missing. So it, so one response is to take more moments where we practice coming home into what's right here and just start asking ourselves, is there really anything missing in this moment? Because when we get quiet, when the mind stops, you know, generating its repeating narrative, there's a, a very delicious kind of quietness and aliveness, richness. It's very dynamic, it's creative, and it's very peaceful, and we feel full. So one thing is just to explore that, explore that practice. And the other is gratitude practice, is that even people who are hooked on wanting things more and hooked on thinking something's wrong still have life that they know is really, really something they cherish. And there's huge amount of science now that if each day we just take a little bit of time to remember what it is we love, what we're grateful for, or to have a gratitude buddy and just email them three things. You don't have to write anything else, but just that exercise alleviates depression, it warms the heart, it makes us feel better. So I think both of them, Sarah, both practicing more presence and 
on purpose remembering what we love. Tara, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? I can say that my advice to myself, my mantra now, is to trust the gold. And in any moment, and, and that's my, my latest book is called Trusting the Gold. It's, it's um, built on that. Because in any moment that I pause, and I'm just even reflecting on it right now to trust the gold, I get more sincere and I feel more alive and I feel actually more humored by everything and more spacious and happier because there's a truth to it. It's like when we're believing something's wrong with us, we're actually believing something that's not true. Mm. So I feel like I come into truth when I remind myself to trust the gold. And then it helps me to look at you sitting there, your beautiful, bright self, and and just see the gold that's in you. It just, yeah. So that's the advice I give to myself and that I like to share. It just brings something up that happened the other day, how I think our perception of ourself can be so different sometimes to how others perceive us or how we think others perceive us. I did this interview with a colleague that I've known for a long time. He's a big Australian comedian, awesome, great guy. And in the middle of the interview, he starts saying, I think you're this and that, like all these wonderful, beautiful things. You're so smart. You said this. And I thought to myself, how the hell does he think I'm all those things? Like I do not perceive myself in that way, but that's so kind and that's so lovely and I, I feel that sometimes we're so hard on ourselves, we don't realise that we're not trusting that gold, as you said, that your book is named, because we just have these, these warped perceptions of what's kind of going on in reality that are always looking at the negative bias rather than the positive one. You're absolutely right. And that is, I think, our biggest suffering. Honestly, Sarah, there's... The trance of unworthiness, moving through life feeling like, um, you know, there's something missing or wrong with us is the most pervasive um, pain that I see in our culture. And that's why it takes a real commitment to kind of see it Mm. and say, it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. It just doesn't. Tara, what's your favorite prayer? It's, it's in the same genre is that, um, you know, may I let go into loving awareness, may I trust loving awareness, may I be held by loving awareness. It's, it always has to do with remembering and trusting the truth of what's here. And it always has to do with love. Yeah. But, you know, in any given moment, it has different words that, you know, kind of meet the mood of the moment. Beautiful. What, what about you? I, my favorite prayer is also the loving awareness. I learned that through Ram Dass and I love that as well. And then there is the prayer of St. Francis that um, I do say every morning as well, which I think is just beautiful. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I would love to know what your most mystical experience has been. It's, it's not a one-shot uh, it's arriving again and again in an awareness and love that's not hitched to an idea of a separate self. So it's a kind of homecoming to a field that's the same field 
that is living through you and all beings. It's the same awareness that's looking through your eyes and feeling with your heart. And, it, and it's in, inhabiting that field of loving awareness where there's no sense of um, separation. And that doesn't mean I can't in the next moment operate from an ego self, but there's always a remembrance of that. Mm. Tara, what's your greatest hope for society today? Uh, that we'll learn to trust our belonging to each other, that we'll stop othering each other, and uh, that that'll allow us, you know, that justice is love played out in society, as Cornell West says, and that we'll create a, a more just and loving world. And we're in a hard time right now. Mm. And I feel like the spiritual path is not something that means go off into a cave, meditate, and come to peace with yourself. It means get intimate with your inner life and then live from love and live on behalf of all of us. And that means take care of our earth, you know, our larger body, this earth, and know that all the non-human animals are not objects for us to torment in factory mm -hmm. farms. They're living sentient beings to cherish. And to know that all the people that look different because of their religion or their their color are a part of us. And that the biggest healing that we could possibly do is to really honestly look at the ways we create separation and commit ourselves to embracing each other. Tara, what is a life of greatness to you? There's a palliative caregiver from Australia that's a friend and um, she said the greatest regret of the dying is I didn't live true to myself and uh, and in a way I think of that I didn't live true to who I really am to to love to awareness and a life of greatness is just however this body heart mind can manifest loving awareness in the world it can be in very simple ways it can be by creating beautiful gardens and it can be by creating beautiful pictures or raising children with a lot of love or celebrating with others in beautiful ways. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just being true to who we really are. Tara Brock, you are one of the most beautiful humans. Thank you for all the work you've done. I just want to say during this interview, I've been staring at you. Your eyes have locked with my eyes during the whole interview and you are, this, this love exudes from you. I can feel it. And we're, we are over Zoom. You, my eyes have watered just looking at your eyes because everything that's come out of your mouth is so divine. So thank you for all the work you've done. You are a true blessing. Well, thank you, dear. I feel like whatever's happening here is, is it's mutual. I mean, you're bringing so much purity and beauty and brightness to what you're doing. It's a service, so... Namaste. <laughs> Namaste. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. 
and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.